February 2021 is Mars Month. There are three missions from different countries about to arrive at the Red Planet. And to talk to us through these missions and what they're up to, I spoke to the authors of the wonderful book, The Search for Life on Mars, Elizabeth Howe and Nicholas Booth. You can still find us on social media. Please give us a follow at Space and Things 1 on Twitter or get involved at Space and Things Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And while you're at it, why not consider giving us a review on your favorite podcast provider? But right now, we hope that you enjoy episode 24 of the Space and Things Podcast. You're listening to the Space and Things Podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 24 of our podcast. Emily, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing good. I'm hanging in there, uh, just coping with all the stuff going on, you know, still quarantined, but I'm feeling good. So, uh, uh, yeah, I've, uh, uh, we kind of dropped a little, uh, I guess not a teaser, but we kind of alluded last week we've gotten some uh, screener copies of a certain new TV show that's coming up soon. Yeah. And I have been watching them. I'm not done with it, but I've been watching some of them. And uh, obviously, I cannot give away spoilers. I- I'm obsessed. It It is so freaking good. So I'm very excited about it. So that's all I have to say. I don't want to give too much away because, uh, yeah, I don't feel like getting sued by Apple TV. <laughs> yeah, I need to sit down and watch those episodes uh, pretty soon. But, um yeah, it You're starts. Love it starts next Friday, I believe. So uh, yes, it does. The, the rest of you episodes one and two do go up next Friday, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that next week as well, and give you a little bit more of a, absolutely of, a, of our thoughts on uh, on what's coming up. One, one thing which I think is quite funny: one of our patrons, Susanna, has sent us a tweet uh, saying that she, she's got this idea for a new segment for the podcast, where every week we work in. Uh, a way of you doing uh, uh, reading a tweet with a different British accent. Oh uh, my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh boy! So maybe, I'm in maybe, trouble. That, maybe that's something we can uh, we can start next week as well. <laughs> yeah, let's. I think we can do it, but I'm going to be like banned from ever going to <laughs> the British Isles ever again. Like I'm never going to be allowed there. Like. They're going to issue a statement like this chick cannot come here ever again because I'm going to offend every damn person that's there. Like, and there's a lot of British accents. That's yeah. the thing. Like, it's 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 amazing for such a small island how many different accents there actually are. But I'm sure I'm sure we're going to do a mighty fine job when we get onto that. But uh... <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh boy. I'm already preparing the the music which I'm going to have playing underneath every time we're doing yeah! it. So I'm <laughs> looking forward to that. Hey, Emily, I've got something else I wanted to bring up with you. Space Hipsters yeah. is about to turn 10. Yes, it is. It is. Um, I believe it, the day is February 15th. So, yeah, next week Monday. it's going to turn nice. 10 years old. Congratulations. Um, thank you. I can't quite believe it's been that long. Uh, so much has happened in the last 10 years. Uh, much of it I was not anticipating. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think we'd have that many people in the group. When I first started it, it was like a joke. Yeah. Like I was like, yeah, it'll be me and four people just, you know, shooting the breeze. And then it just kind of blew up over the years. So really, um, it's been a trip and I'm really excited. And if anybody who listens this podcast to this podcast is on uh, Space Hipsters, 
Uh, check us out. I think we're going to have some little giveaways next week and some fun activities. Nice. So if you're in the group, come check it out. If you're not in the group, uh, I suggest you join. So yeah. you might like it. It's it's the It really is the best uh, group I've ever found for people who are interested in space on uh, on Facebook. And also that you're Thank doing you. some pretty cool um, badges that are, or patches that are being uh, sold at the moment for some charities, yes. I believe, that Tim Tim has designed. Yes, uh, we have some. I, I got to give Tim a shout out. Absolutely. Um, Tim Gagnon has uh, designed um, our 10th anniversary patches. And I, I, I'm a little biased. I love Tim's work. Mm. But um, these are spectacular. I mean, this is really touching, uh, really kind of meshes the two, you know, the, the last decade together really well, if you see it. So, um, yeah, I think they're 10 bucks. They're 10 bucks a pop. So um, and they're on sale now where I believe we're doing the pre-orders. So, uh yeah, just if you're in the group, uh, I think it's in the pinned announcement. Uh, go get your patch sales in. Yeah, I hope I hope that we get Tim on at some point to talk through his art and uh, and all these different patches that he's designed over the years because he's a fascinating man and some of the things he's done are incredible. He is, and his work his work is uh, beautiful. I I have uh, I, I'm a little biased. I have a lot of his patches, and he's designed um, our commemorative anniversary patches. And our commemoratives, you know, milestone, like 10,000, 5,000, etc. So I'm a little biased about his work. Um, I really love it, but he's done a spectacular job, and I agree totally. He needs to be on our show. Absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, Emily, I think it's time we crack on. Yes, let's crack on then. <laughs> You're listening to the Space and Things podcast with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. There have been three launches since we last recorded. On the 2nd of February, a Soyuz 2.1B, 2.1B, who knows, uh, rocket launched from <laughs> Russia carrying a military signals intelligence satellite. And on the 4th of February, SpaceX launched a Falcon 9 rocket from Cape Canaveral, releasing a further 60 Starlink satellites into orbit. We're closing in on having around 1,000 of these satellites in orbit now, uh, and that's of a planned 12,000, uh, which could later be extended to 42,000. It really is crazy how much these things are going to change on night sky, but they should be able to deliver high-speed internet to every corner of this flat Earth. Uh, <laughs> so I feel there's a whole debate uh, that we could have here about these about these satellites and and what they do and and their impact on our night sky. But that's for a later podcast for sure. Uh, also on the fourth of Feb, a Long March three B rocket was launched in China, which put a communications technology experiment satellite into orbit. As always, videos of these launches will appear in our show notes, and if they don't don't appear on your podcast provider then just check out our website spaceandthingspodcast.com um we unfortunately have some sad news to report this week uh millie hughes holford nasa's first female payload specialist has unfortunately passed away at age 75 hughes fulford flew on the space shuttle columbia back in june 1991 on the sts-40 mission where as a cell biologist she was responsible for overseeing some of the experiments on the Space Lab Life Sciences 1 mission. This was the fifth Space Lab mission and the first dedicated to biomedical research. Um, we will, of course, post an obituary so that you can learn more about her incredible life and career. And uh, we'd like to send out condolences to her family and loved ones. Absolutely. Elsewhere, this is a bit of a roundup here, Northrop Grumman test-fired the rocket motors of the new Vulcan Centaur booster. 
the European Space Agency also announced that they are recruiting new astronauts and there's going to be a virtual press event this Tuesday, the 16th of Feb, so keep an eye out for that. I'm hoping they're looking for tall, clumsy musicians. And finally, <laughs> Lockheed Martin have selected an ABL Space Systems rocket, uh, which is a company from California, uh, to be their first launch from the island of Unst in Shetland, uh, which is way up north in Scotland. Hopefully next, sometime next year. So space rockets flying from the UK. Well, I never... Anyway, it's time for Mars. Discovery Houston, 20 seconds to LOS Tedris. Just before we started recording tonight, it was reported that the UAE Hope probe uh, entered orbit around Mars. It is the first time that the United Arab Emirates have sent a mission to Mars and is one of the three missions arriving there this month with uh, China's Tianwen-1 mission due to get there on the 9th of February, and NASA's Perseverance following with a landing attempt next week. In order to find out more about these missions, I contacted Elizabeth Howe and Nicholas Booth, who last year co-authored and released a book called The Search for Life on Mars, the greatest scientific detective story of all time. The pair are definitely experts in this field, and I had a great time interviewing them. Uh, They were very gracious with their time and even put up with the fact I had two brief power cuts while we were recording, which has actually never happened all the time I've lived here. Anyway, I hope that you find this as informative as I did. Uh, It's another one of those interviews which went to places I just did not expect. So, welcome to Elizabeth Howe and Nicholas Booth. Thank you very much for joining us on Space and Things podcast. First of all, one at a time, introduce yourselves. What's your background and and and, uh, and how did you end up writing a book about Mars? Let's start with Elizabeth. Okay. Um, so, my journey to where I got today is a long one, but um, I would say the most important things to know is I came into this as a young enthusiast. I saw the movie Apollo 13 in the 1990s when there wasn't much discussion about space, unlike today. And um, I just kept on going. You know, I said, this is my passion. I want to keep pursuing this no matter what the greater world tells me. And eventually, through a series of adventures and perhaps misadventures, I became what I am today. So I'm a journalist who focuses on space exploration. I write for uh, places like space.com. And uh, I used to write for Universe Today, which is also well known in the community, and Forbes. And uh, of course, I have these books, including this one with Nick. And uh, I have other income streams coming in through consulting and through uh, teaching, but the space stuff is what I want to talk about today. So the story of how Nick and I got together, and I'll let Nick speak about his own experience, which is quite, quite interesting as well, is that I was going on a flight to Kazakhstan to uh, watch a space crew go up to the International Space Station. And while I was out there, I was, of course, tweeting about it because who gets to go to Kazakhstan very often? Um, This is obviously pre-pandemic, folks, so please don't lecture me about travel during the pandemic. (laughs) So anyway, 2018, I'm out there. I'm following this mission. It's fascinating, all the Russian history, et cetera, putting this out there on Twitter. And then I get this message from a fellow I never heard of called Nicholas Booth going, um, hello, um, I have this Mars manuscript from the 1990s and it's on floppy disks. And I I think it fell on me during a search of my parents' attic. And 
how would you feel about updating this manuscript? And of course, I had never heard of this fellow. I was very poorly informed, though, because I soon started Google and noticed that he had done many, many books at that point, and so including space books. So that's how the collaboration started. And we have become not only colleagues, but also friends sort of sharing this idea across the ocean that space is important, that space is a way to leverage the talents of the next generation, and that Mars is where we need to go next. And so, Nick, why don't you introduce some of the work that you have done? Sure. Um, thank you for telling everybody I stalked you while you're in Kazakhstan. <laughs> but, um, but I've been to Kazakhstan in '94, um, and it is such an amazing place. And it, then it was it was absolutely surreal. I, I still get the feeling. If anybody who sees this or hears this gets the chance to go to Kazakhstan, you should. It is quite extraordinary. I was a space cadet, like Elizabeth was, because I'm now in my fifties. It does make me laugh because last time we did a podcast, Elizabeth said, "And Nick's been following space." since 1976 i was like doogie hauser because i followed it because i was you know i was mad keen on it and i wrote to people apl for information about viking which had just landed my claim to was i was the youngest brit to work at jpl um that's another story i can tell you another time but i basically just went to college realized i wasn't good enough to do research and they always say if you're not good enough to do anything teach which is a load of nonsense if you can't do anything right so I did. So my first job was on Astronomy Now magazine, where I worked for Patrick Moore, and then I worked for newspapers. So from '89 until '99, so that span of space missions. Then, so I was very lucky. But I then left newspapers, went into television, did other things. I would say that uh, you know I've written books about a spy. I've written one about a, a famous forgery. But Mars keep kept drawing me back. Um, and one day in 2018, I was looking at my mum's attic. And this box fell on my head and all these discs and downloaded them and looked at them. And the manuscript that I'd been working on, which I'd never quite finished, was in a better state. But I knew I was, you know, I'd not done any reporting for 20 years. So I needed to get hold of somebody who was willing to work with me and also knew what they're doing. And that was where Elizabeth came in. We did a test chapter together to make sure, you know, we could, our styles would work together, which they did perfectly. I was reading earlier something we'd written, and I can't remember. I started it, and then I know you did a bit, and it's it's been one of those things where it works. Sometimes you hear authors who co-authored end up, you know, sort of in a divorce court or something. This this worked really quite well. <laughs> not yet, anyway. No, um, it's not yet. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, so respective partners. Yeah, not not each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I am glad because it's a great book, and one of the things I really like about it as a musician who's got a hobby of spaceflight is it's very accessible uh, with not too much uh, hard lingo. So although obviously you're on this pod and I would like you to talk about the book, one of the things reasons we thought now was a good time is because we have these three missions arriving at Mars these, this month. Um, and as far as I'm aware, I think that might be a first for three to be arriving all at the same time. I think what's unheard of is the number of nations that are sending a spacecraft to Mars in well, one that month. Too, yeah. It used to just be the NASA-Soviet Union discussion, right? You know, yeah. uh, of course, so, somewhat predates me, but I still was aware in the 1990s when that was the discourse. But the great thing about space is we have diversified. And I'm talking not only in terms of nations, but also the kinds of people 
that are working on this. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we have a variety of people from different backgrounds, and I'm talking about different genders, uh, talking about uh, different types of experience. I mean, NASA brings in musicians on the regular to do work with them. So go and you know seek them out, or go to ESA, your equivalent, and figure it out. And uh, what I think is really the benefit of that is we just have better space missions because we have so many types of experience that are coming in. And mm. so uh, the three Mars missions are from NASA, from China, and also from the uh, the Emirates, I believe. And that's just an exciting moment because the Emirates is emerging even faster into space than it was even a couple of years ago. They just had their first astronaut. The Chinese, obviously, all those uh, successes they've had on the moon, they've landed on the far side of the moon, which is unheard of, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, lots of robotic work. And then, of course, we have NASA, which is continuing its long-standing series of rovers uh, there on the surface. And so a diversity of ideas, uh, positions, things that they're going to be working on, and most of them are going to be hooked into this life idea in some fashion. Now, Elizabeth, it's my understanding that you uh, got to go to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL as we call it, um, to go and have a look at Perseverance. So... Can you please let us know a bit about that? For sure. Um, I was extremely lucky because, of course, uh, I am a Canadian and I had to receive special permission from NASA to go onto their site and to see their facilities. And they were lovely, I have to say, because obviously there are different requirements that need to be put in for foreign citizens. So let me just say that up front. It was the best experience uh, being on JPL. I had to be escorted everywhere, but all the same, they were so welcoming and opened up so many of their facilities to me. So thank you very much to NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory for making that possible. So the day was filled mostly with the interviews that you're seeing in the book. So anybody that Mm. came from JPL likely was somebody I grabbed in person. And this was intense. It was five hours or six hours or so of me being driven on a tiny little rover, not a Mars rover, but like one of those (laughs) little rovers type things. We're running around this facility, which is like a university campus on a rover. We're at some points having to dodge uh, local police forces because they're moving things around like equipment and they need to shut down the traffic in order to make it possible for this to happen. And this is, of course, way pre-pandemic. So you have to understand it was a very working, busy facility at that time. So that was my morning and part of my afternoon. Even lunch break was a working lunch break. Then in the afternoon, they said to me, we're going to show you some stuff. And I said, okay. Here we go. So uh, off we went, and we got to see the uh, the Perseverance rover in its clean room, in its little room where they're putting it together, making sure it's safe from all the horrible microbes that we could be exporting onto Mars. And I was just speechless. I was behind this glass wall looking at this rover, and they just sort of showed it to me. There was no warning, right? And I'm and I'm out of words. I'm going, but but that 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 thing over there, that that's that's the Mars rover, right? That 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 <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, it was. It was incredible seeing a piece of hardware that's going to be landing on a planet millions of miles away, and that is going to be so representative of all of the thousands and thousands of people from, as I said, all walks of life, all types of jobs, all types of backgrounds being on there. And now it even has a little monument on it to thank the first uh, the first responders, right, because mm-hmm. of this pandemic. So they're also thinking about that. And a little disc that is carrying millions, or maybe not millions, but thousands of names from people who wanted to have their name shipped to Mars that NASA had a little competition. So it was not only extremely interesting for me personally, but I was trying to kind of convey that idea in my stories and also in the book about the importance of what it represents. And so even if you're not lucky enough to see it in person, you can look at pictures of it. And there was a live video for a long time. And I was just so lucky. It, It sort of brings it home. You see this piece of kit being assembled 
and the next time you see it, it'll be dropping out the sky after seven minutes of, you know, sheer terror uh, for people whose faces will show the sheer terror sometime this month. It is it is pretty impressive. I've been to many air and space museums, and a lot of them have models of these uh, Mars rovers. But I always wonder what the real size of these things are. Uh, when we see photos of them on Mars, you don't have any perspective. There's no human standing next to them that we can compare it to. So with Perseverance, I mean, how big is it? It is big. You can ride on it. I mean, I'm not saying that it's like a huge uh, situation, but I would say a pony, a good-sized English pony would probably wow. be the right way to describe the size of Perseverance and its predecessor, Curiosity, which, of course, has been running around doing its thing since 2012. So yeah. it's inspiring. <laughs> um, the other rovers, because we should point out that the Chinese Tianwen rover and the ExoMars, the Rosalind Franklin, are, are much smaller. They're more like little kind of... The front end of a VW Polo, for want of a better expression. Right. Okay. Um, I JPL with, and um, you know, was reported on Pathfinder and Sojourner. Uh, Sojourner was like a microwave oven with wheels. It was tiny, and when people saw it for the first time, there was a reaction of, "Was that a scale model?" Now, with uh, I've seen Curiosity. There's two. There's one at JPL when I was last there about seven, eight years ago. Now. And the cameras at the top. So you've got the two, the mast cam. It's almost six and a half feet off the ground. Now I can see these images that come back are jam-packed with pixels because it's high up. It's got stereoscopic vision. And it's amazing the dual acuity, not just the wavelengths we can see, but into the infrared as well. And certainly with Perseverance, the Mastercam Z, or Z, as we would say here, because um, you, you, you talked to somebody about that, didn't you? I said, Elizabeth, I seem to remember. Exactly. There's a plethora of cameras is what we're trying to get to. You know, like there's almost every kind of camera that you would need to do scientific investigations on Mars. Some of them are directed by lasers. Some of them are more panoramic type cameras where you're trying to look at the landscape because you need to get the context. Any geologist would tell you this. You need to know what the context is of any rock that you pick up or any sample that you take. And so mm. these different cameras are doing very, very different jobs. They're trying as best as they can to replicate human knowledge on another planet, although obviously Obviously, there are some, you know, logistical difficulties, such as the great distance, but they still do a really, really good job. The, the other thing to point out is that the movies we've had from Mars to date are all silent movies. Every attempt to land a microphone hasn't worked. And what Perseverance will have, it's got two microphones. One is for the engineer so as it goes through the Martian atmosphere, which will be replayed after the landing. And then you've actually got the actual atmosphere of Mars sounds like. Uh, which I think is fascinating. Today, none of the phones have worked. The InSight lander, which is looking at seismic, looking at the interior, um, its solar panels have rattled and they've repeated, you know, this is what it could sound like, but it's not the actual. So not only will the Baymax fully HD highest resolution cameras, it will be Mars, the movie. It's, you know, it's the talkies. It's going to be fascinating. <laughs> the talkies, love that. And and moving on from there, I think this is a logical step from movies uh, and old media. Social media has become a big part of Mars missions, and it's one of one of my favourite things that have happened over the last few Mars missions. Obviously, all of the rovers have had their own social media accounts and uh, and have almost had their own personalities, which has been great. But we've also been taken behind the scenes at JPL uh, and being in the room 
when these things are going through their landings, uh, which I find incredibly emotional, seeing the, the panic and the celebration of those behind the scenes. I, I wonder uh, if you had any stories about about this from your time at JPL. I've got a couple of really fun anecdotes. So um, one of them is actually not about the rover, but about that InSight lander that um, Nick was just alluding to. So it had what was called a mole, and the mole was supposed to dig underneath the surface and look for evidence of heat, essentially, below there. That way we could get a sense of how Mars is put together, how it was formed, um, what kind of volcanism might be present, how it relates to other planets. It's just a really good investigation, right? But lo and behold, the soil ends up to be rock hard instead <laughs> of this nice soft stuff that they were used to in other missions. And so they keep drilling the thing in and it keeps bouncing out. And then they go, okay, we are NASA. We can figure out things to do. And so they gently began to hammer at it with equipment that was not actually designed to do it, but did a fantastic job. And down it goes in and up it bounces again. And this happened for, it felt like forever. About the personality is that NASA was talking about this on social media clearly, and people were calling in their answers. They had ideas, you know, like there was like the worldwide effort to try and get the Mars mission going. But despite that, the poor fellow that I spoke with on the team he actually entered and he was very open about this. And so I want to be clear that I'm not just divulging privilege information, but um, he actually was having a moment of depression because it just was so discouraging to be working for, let's call it a decade on this problem of trying to get below the surface and it's absolutely not working. Right. And so mm. there was also this moment of him trying to look to the community for support. And I'm not saying that he was trying to kind of lean over too much on people, but that he just was saying, this is how I was feeling. And what I like about that story is it just has such a good example for younger people about disappointment, about not meeting your, your expectations, about not meeting your goals, about how you're feeling through that. You feel like crap. You know, it's just very, yeah. very honestly, it's a terrible situation. But what he did was he turned it around. He said, okay, it was difficult. I have found ways of moving through that. It will always be with me, just like any kind of grief. But at the same time, it's a valuable lesson learned and also a valuable way to model exploration for the younger folks that are coming in. So that's one of my favorite um, stories. And the result of all that, by the way, is NASA just decided to suspend the investigation with the mole about three weeks ago, I think. They ran out of a report yeah. with an independent board looking at Insight, and, it, and they said Insight's done a great job in terms of meeting all of its work, but its power requirements are starting to diminish. It doesn't have as much power available. So NASA finally had to make the hard choice of let's cut the experiment that's not working and focus on the experiments that are. That way we can get the most science return out of this mission possible. But they will yeah. take the lessons learned, as they call it, and move it into other missions. So you can mm. bet they're going to try this again at some point. Don't worry. I'm sure they're they're already on it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What was interesting in, when I was interested in space as a kid was you used to write to JPL, and about four months later, a kit would come, fourth-class surface mail. I always remember, because I thought well, that must have come on a clipper ship which left Boston in 1778 or something. And now it's all instant with Sodia. And the difference is that you can follow the missions because it's instantaneous. You can follow what, what people are thinking, what people are doing. 21 million people follow the JPL and the Mars Twitter feeds. I mean, that's three or four small countries. It's, it's quite amazing. So you get this instant, you can follow it. And I think it doesn't necessarily, it's not just about science and technology and all that. You know, it's important, obviously, in building these things, but it's the emotional journey that we'll have that you follow and you think, wow, what would I do if I was in that position? 
Um, and that's why I think it's a bigger grab. I also want to talk briefly yeah. about the Opportunity mission, which was one of the two tinier rovers that ran in the early 2000s. It lasted for 15 years. It was supposed to last 90 days, right? And so people were expecting that it would be a fairly short mission, maybe a couple of months or maybe a few years. It turned out that, you know, whole generations of children had grown up from preschool to university by the time that it had finished. People had gone through life processes that they weren't even imagining in that time. And so an opportunity finally died. You know, it just essentially ran out of power uh, in a cold environment, which is what uh, happens often on Mars. Um, they had a uh, coming together of the community at JPL where everybody was there celebrating uh, what they had learned, uh, what kind of uh, kind of things they had overcome as a community. They also even had little emotional support pogs. You know, those beautiful little uh, creatures from the oh, new wow. Star Wars films? Somebody was handing them out. And during, you know, some of the more intense moments of the discussion, you could <laughs> hold this pog and just have a little bit of emotional support during this time, right? And uh, I just thought that was another lovely way of kind of honoring the half generation, essentially, of work that had gone into this one mission and that will continue to feed back data to us for the next, well, forever, as long yeah. as we have the data with us. It's interesting to me, to watch because I'd stopped reporting and watching the reaction in 2018 when we started working together and it was completely crazy because it, it was literally adults crying and you think I knew I knew this I knew that people were emotionally involved these robots because they invest a lot of time and effort and money and it, it shows that and I think it you know the um, it's a bare knuckle ride you're going to go through it now you're going to go through it when the ExoMars lands um, it will be with sample return, and it will, you know, yeah, every generation that comes to this new will go through this roller coaster, and at the end of it, will go, Wow, you know, there's a sort of it is an amazing journey that you can now watch, you can watch it on your own screen. Yeah, I do love that. So, before we uh get on to talking about the three new missions, I was wondering if you could give us a, a number of how many missions have we actually had to Mars and and how many of them actually been successful? How many have we had that many successful landings? I would say roughly fifty dozens, probably about fifty. Maybe Nick would be Something about like that. Yeah. In terms of landing, we also have to remember that the ones that came earlier tended to fail more often, right? You know, how space flight was back in those days. But um, yeah, a healthy percentage of them never have made it to the surface. And sometimes it's as simple as the wrong number mm. programmed into their uh, software, or sometimes it's sort of a miscommunication. There was one lander, for example, that um, thought it was on the surface and it shut off its engines and it folded out its legs and it was actually quite far up above the surface <laughs> and land. That didn't quite go so well. So we learn the lessons mission after mission and we get better. And the success rate as a according uh, progress, I suppose, of that understanding has improved. But because it's just so risky, that's why things keep crashing, which is what I know happened to the last ESA mission. So unfortunate, but they, they almost had it. They were almost there. <laughs> the percentage is only 40% make it down all the way and work. Wow. Is that because it has a variable uh, atmosphere in terms of composition? Yeah, exactly. It's The worst possible atmosphere to come through is one that's very thin because there's not enough atmosphere to slow you down, and but there's still enough mm. atmosphere that you go need to go through all these crazy steps. So now people look at this week and into next week, looking at the atmosphere of Mars and trying to predict just how it's you know the the, the boundary layer as it's called is pop, popping up and down because it that affects the exact moment that the parachute should open. 
Um, and I, I'm going to yeah. hand to Elizabeth to talk about it because that's the, one of the new, this new autonomous software that they've got on this mission is quite interesting. You talked to the guys, didn't you? Exactly. So uh, I think I can blend this into a discussion about what Percy, as we're calling it in the community, is going to be doing. So that's a perseverance broker when it makes it to the surface. So first it has to go through the seven minutes of terror which is very similar to what the Curiosity rover did seven years ago, but with various improvements. One of the improvements is it can actually lock onto and dynamically target what it needs to go, where it needs to go on the surface. And so it has directional software to make sure it's not too far off track. And that's simply because AI, artificial intelligence, is so much better these days. You know, we have more computing pro uh, power, more understanding. We can, just like with any other type of computing project, do more with less, right? We just happen to know how to pack in more uh, software and more uh, memory onto a device than we could even a decade ago. And so we're going to be taking advantage of those advances. So assuming that it lands on the surface and all goes as planned, its main mission is, well, there's many, many missions that are associated with it, but I'll split it into two. Um, the main mission, I would say, is to figure out what kind of environment was in its landing area, Jezreel Crater, and then whether it was habitable. And as a part of that, this is new, it's going to be taking the most promising samples and caching them, putting them aside. And the idea is, in just a few more years, it has not been funded yet, it has not been fully decided yet, but NASA and ESA together plan a joint Mars sample return mission. And this is going to be eminently complex. It's going to involve numerous spacecraft and also, of course, a lot of protocols here on Earth to protect us because this pandemic showed us we have to be careful. We knew it already, but we know even more now. So um, what they're going to do is take these samples, put them aside in a safe area, and then the next mission can come along, pick it up, bring it to a liftoff craft. The liftoff craft will bring it to orbit, then another craft takes it home. So that's going to be part of a larger network of Mars thinking. The second part of the mission I'll briefly highlight is it has a helicopter, first copter on Mars, and uh, it's going to be a test, but they're hoping that they can understand how to fly in the atmosphere. And then imagine, now you got a scout. You don't have to be running all over the terrain, which is rocky and destroyed Curiosity's wheels. And they did make changes, to be clear on Percy, but um, now they got something to look ahead and look behind and also to find more of that context. And it can even get up to tricky areas a rover can't go to like into a crater or up a hill, or mm. maybe some of those areas on Mars that possibly may have running water, although less and less we're believing it. But anyway, they can run up to the one of those areas perhaps and take a look too without disturbing the, uh, the surrounding regions. So those I think are the two bigger innovations, but there are many other smaller ones that we won't have time to get into, such as the camera technology, the software that's on board, the laser targeting system, and uh, the numerous other instruments that are going to be doing sampling and work there. And Nick, do you want to take the other two missions, China and uh, the Emirates? Sure. Um, I'll do them in reverse order, purely because the atmosphere of Mars is still mysterious in many ways. People understand it much better than they did 20 years ago, and certainly with 10 years ago. But, for example, there is much information on, on the wind at the surface, because a couple of the missions, the wind instruments didn't work. And really that how the lower part of the atmosphere interacts with the middle and then the upper atmosphere which is electrically charged where the sunlight and the solar wind is ripping electrons off the, the molecules so you've got this kind of chemical cocktail of all this stuff that's going on one of the missions that's there the maven mission uh, built and operated originally by the university of colorado has found that the biggest uh things found is the fact that all this stuff that's being pulled off the martian atmosphere probably is responsible those processes have removed the atmosphere of mars over time 
So moving backwards to 4 billion years ago, where Jezero Crater is, if the atmosphere was thicker, there might have been a greater chance for water, liquid water on the surface. And then if there's that, there may be the possibility of life on Mars. So where hope comes in, not only does it look at the ultraviolet, so it's looking at the stuff at the top of the atmosphere, it's going to measure in the infrared the heat flows and how the circulation, and that relates to the dust and how dust storms, because even today, nobody really understands how Martian dust storms, how they kick off. Is it inherently chaotic? Nobody's been able to predict it. They then go global. Uh, and how do they then switch off, as it were? You know, what, what is the loading of the atmosphere to be able to do that? And what HOPE is going to do is in this long looping orbit where it's going to be looking and will be taking daily synoptic maps, which in simple languages is a weather satellite, and it's going to be connecting with MAVEN, which is nearer in. And then the dream is to look at some sort of phenomenon that they can say, wow, okay, we watched that from here, seen that from there, and then connecting it to try and understand how the atmosphere of Mars is. Because if you can understand it today, you can work out what it was like probably four billion years ago, because there's lots of different theories as to how thick the atmosphere was. But it's all based on modelling that there isn't there's gaps in the in the information. The Chinese mission, it, it takes me back to the early days of when I when the Soviet Union still existed. And you never heard anything until after it happened. So even every day this week, there's new bits of information. But the Chen-1 orbiter will arrive and it will go into orbit, and its first orbit is quite elongated with a near point that they're going to aim for the possible landing sites in the northern hemisphere of Mars, Utopia Planitia, uh, the very top part. It's a vast area, the top of the Viking 2 in 1976. Now, they've released some pictures, though, you know, a plane, but there's no kind of scale, and it doesn't actually tell you exactly whether, you know, there's no bullseye on it, as you get with American missions. So it will go into orbit. It'll spend the first months uh, at this near point, each time clicking photograph a high-resolution camera. They'll choose a landing site, and then the, they've, they've released a video of it going through the atmosphere. It's, it's very similar to Spirit and Opportunity, the same size as that. It will land, and then there's, it's got the same sort of suite of instruments, and they're talking about that you know if they do this successfully, there'll be other missions. And they're aiming in the same time frame as sample return. That will be quite interesting at the start of the 2030s. You know, who will bring samples back first? Will it be the European-American one that Elizabeth talked about? Or will it be a Chinese mission? You know, it's quite, a, quite an interesting possibility. You're listening to Space and Things. And so, Elizabeth and Nick... Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but we have a Patreon page, and every time we have a guest, uh, our patrons are asked to submit some questions. Uh, and I told them this week that uh, that you two were coming on, and that you are Mars expert. So I hope that's okay. Elizabeth can answer because she she's the expert. I'll just disappear. Amar <laughs> uh, has said, if humanity does end up colonising and settling on Mars, what would you th- hope that would look like? And do you think that it would be markedly different from depictions we see in science fiction okay i can i can attack that okay um the first thing that i want to be saying is um and i'm going to say this very carefully but 
I know that there is a lot of language associated with the word colonization and also with the history of colonization in my own country, Canada, and also with the mm. greater project of the British Empire, particularly during the 19th, early 20th centuries. And so I don't want to see that repeated. Let me just put it that way without getting into all the history and the politics of that. I think that the way to go is multinational, um, diverse as possible, inclusive as possible, get people from all different backgrounds. Um, for example, right now on the International Space Station, there are countries that don't pay into the station on the regular, but they are invited to fly up on a kind of pay-per-use idea. So that's how the Emirates got in. They paid for mm. a seat on their mission. They got onto the International Space Station. They had a set of experiments that they could be working on, and that allowed them to participate, even though they didn't have the resources to buy in back in the 1990s when the whole thing was being put together, right? And that's what I'm hoping we're going to be seeing in a future Mars settlement, that we're going to be saying, okay, maybe we're going to have a couple of companies or a couple of countries chiefly in charge of what's going on. However, to make sure that we are trying to include people from all walks of life, all regions of Earth, we are going to be occasionally bringing folks up as we can and making it as diverse as possible. So I don't want it to be a repository for billionaires or anything like that, right? What I'd rather have is a broad range of people from all walks of life. And I want to also get more um, people who are not scientists and engineers on there eventually. At first, we'll need it just for uh, structural purposes. But as time goes on, let's get musicians. Let's get Dave on Mars. You know, I'll, I'll crowdfund your Patreon. Yes. Yeah, we're crowdfunded. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and get you talking about what's going on. And so in broad swaths, that's what I think would be important. But how you deploy the different modules, you have to prioritize your living quarters first and your safety first, and then the science. Those are sort of the big things that they need to be focusing on out there. And then you add stuff as you go along that makes it relevant to public outreach and also to the individual countries and uh, companies' uh, missions, I guess. So very, very broadly, so, although you could do a whole book about this, just to be clear. <laughs> so so in that regard, similar to what is happening on the ISS and the development exactly. of the ISS, but maybe in a smaller time frame, because we've got that exactly. experience of how that's worked yeah. with the ISS. Look at the ISS and also look at, at Antarctica. I think that those would be two wonderful examples of places that have started out as scientific facilities and then have grown into more things besides that. Antarctica mm. now could do more outreach. I was literally talking with somebody through the internet on Antarctica you know, not too long ago, and she has access to video conferencing, which is not was not really a thing until very recently, right? They had to be sort of judicious, but it still is possible. But back in the 1950s and 60s, when they first were starting in Antarctica, it was very dangerous. I mean, it's still dangerous, but it was there was even less infrastructure back then than there is now. And so they had to have a certain type of person out there who's used to training with that. Once you get past yeah. that point, you can start to very carefully with the right kind of training, bring more folks there and uh, also expand your reach. And so, yes, those are two perfect examples that would help you understand. It's pretty obvious to me it's going to happen. It's going to happen within the next 20, 30 years time. But it's not going to be a cakewalk. It's not like going up to the space station and driving back because nobody yet has addressed the fundamental problem of this, which is can humans live for that long you know, in the, going from the Earth? to the Mars, waiting on the surface and coming back. Because all you need is a gamma ray burst or a, a vast solar flare and the crews will be dead by the time they, they reach home. Mm. These things have been looked at for many years, but it's a bit, you know, it, it's it, the, the fundamental problems are still there. But to me, it will happen. Will it be like the science fiction film? I wouldn't have science fiction in the house, by the way. I'm a very, very strange space person. I, I don't like science fiction. It makes me it gives me air sickness. I don't know why, but no, seriously, <laughs> um, 
I think that, you know, it, the first people who go there would probably be, it'll be, you know, government employees. They'll sign special waivers. Um, and I do think, actually, because we, we originally had thought we would do a chapter on this. If you're going to do a book about life on Mars, sending humans there, you're going to have death on Mars. And I think that will be fundamental. That I think people haven't quite emotionally accepted that yet because people will die. That's in the nature of what exploration is. But it will be done as to who will do it. I've always said space exploration is way too important to be left to scientists and civil servants. So maybe it will be private enterprise, a mixture of both, but it's going to happen. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, well, you're right, we could do a whole podcast just on that. But uh, it, it does lead on to this question from Ems. Uh, my child loves the terraforming Mars game. Is that something that could happen? And again, as you could do a whole scientific ep episode on that, and I'm, I'm not saying you will have the knowledge of that, but do you know if that kind of thing is possible or is that really just a game? Well, um, I will just say this briefly. I would have to have more research in front of me to do it instead of just off the top of my head. So in theory, perhaps, but there's a lot of questions that we just don't even know about how Mars is made. So I could probably put this into terms that her child can understand. And that is a great game, by the way, uh, very highly reviewed by my compatriots at space.com. And so good for you for uh, for playing it. Um, one of the things, for example, that we have to think about on Mars, just one, is uh, the atmosphere, right? So the atmosphere is very thin. You can't breathe it. You need to have a spacesuit every time that you go outside, and that's just miserable. You want to have better living than that, right? And so you need to find a way to thicken the atmosphere and also to warm it up. And so one of the resources that you might want to be using is uh, methane or methane, as I know you say it in Britain, right? But how much actually exists underneath the crust of Mars is not really known. And then say that we do know how much is out underneath the crust. How do we get it out of the crust, right? And so um, some people are saying that the processes to get it out would be more complicated than we could really imagine with today's technology. But I can always put the Star Trek idea out there and say, in the future, something magical may happen to make that, uh, that work. But just uh, for the time being, <laughs> With the technology that we have, we can't foresee it, perhaps, but perhaps in a century or two, we could have a different discussion. Now, Nick is more the scientist, so I'm going to stop before I go out of my expertise and go to him. So uh, what would you have to add to that, Nick? I, I, I failed A-level chemistry. My school asked me not to do it because yeah. they didn't want it. So I'm, I'm one to talk about science, aren't I? Well, on the Perseverance lander that's coming, so in every science fiction film, you know, when it, people are eating potatoes and wandering around and doing all this stuff, there's some sort of machine that turns Martian air into water. For the first time, there's an instrument on Perseverance called MOXIE that's actually going to do that. It's the first ever experiment that can you actually take stuff from the Martian atmosphere and turn it into, it's like a sort of fuel cell in reverse. Can you get oxygen and can you get water from hydrogen as well? Can you do that? So before people are galloping off into, you know, the sort of 23rd century, the, the basics have got to be there. Yeah. It is, you know, it, it was one of those th things that came from science fiction there's now a sort of scientific basis to say, yes, it could be possible, but you're not talking, I mean, again, you're talking about having to do a lot of brute force engineering. Well, Insight spent a year trying to dig a hole and we couldn't do that. Yeah. So I think, will it happen? Not in our lifetimes, and it might be centuries yeah. before that happens. I mean, I add just one more thing very quickly, which is we would obliterate anything on the surface if we were to terraform the surface of Mars. We may deem that that is the right thing to do perhaps in the future, but I would say that if there is a chance of even one microbe um, that we're again having this colonization discussion, you know, uh, we had human rights that were terribly, terribly obliterated during uh, some of the empire making activities of a century or two ago. 
let's remember that while we're talking about terraforming or yeah. changing other planets because there are other beings perhaps that would have rights attached to them yeah absolutely there is a whole new question of morality so i think the the immediate future with, with mars exploration isn't just you know decolonizing it and the words that you use there are actually some fundamental moral questions and you know I've, that's not us we're not moral well i'm not moral. <laughs> it's quite moral you probably can do philosophy but i can't you know i'm, I'm just yeah. some old bloke who yeah. just sort of sits reading too many books yeah but, i'm i'm not yeah. a, i'm not a person of morals either but that's an that's no, another you're, you're a musician yeah <laughs> um, so just yeah. really briefly hopefully this this is just a one a one sentence one so lauren has said uh, that she's homeschooling her children at the moment and, and what do you think are the most inspiring parts of these missions are and how do you recommend getting that information to an eight-year-old? So if you, if you know, can you break it down for an eight-year-old to be inspired by this music uh, mission, any of these missions? Um, Lauren, the first thing I would say is look at what your eight-year-old's interests currently are, okay? So I'll give you a small example from a person who's a bit older than that. One of my colleagues has a child who enjoys playing the game Fortnite. And I realize that on the surface, it may not sound like Mars right away, but, but, but bear with me, okay? So Fortnite is a game where you're running around and you're doing different things in it. You could be building stuff or you can be going on missions with people or you could be trying to compete to see who will be lasting the longest in this game. Okay, so you're running around, you're doing all this stuff. So on the surface, it just sounds like some silly video game, right? However, um, they are embedding into this game characters that come from different, as they call it, universes or franchises. And some of them are space related. Okay, so they have Star Wars characters in there, for example. And so you can begin with something like that, that your eight-year-old already enjoys, and then find a space angle to it, is what I'm saying. So their thing may not be video games. It may be a board game, in which case Dave already put out the recommendation of Terraforming Mars. So if they're into board games, show them Terraforming Mars. If they're into books, show them some books that are related, right? So meet their interests, think about what they enjoy, and then just show it and see how they react. Let them direct the learning is really the most important message that I have here. And it may be that they don't latch on right away. Maybe it's something they hit on when they're 16 or when they're 26 or 46, right? But at least yeah. you've done a job in showing them and let them decide what to do next. Don't force it. The last thing I would want is a kid learning space and hating the whole thing, right? But if they're enjoying it and they're really going through the process and they seem to be sort of meeting you at that common ground, then you're going to have a lot of fun. That's what I would say. <laughs> That's great advice. That is really great advice. My advice is take year old outside and show them the same because at the moment mars is very bright it's not as bright as it was in october but you'll see this red dot it looks the color of blood and then get a telescope beg borrow steel find one or find somebody your local astronomy society when we can all get back together and look at mars through a telescope and i did that when i was 13 and it's still with me now and i can describe to you through this telescope a jewel that was sort of flickering and it was absolutely sensational because the first pictures had come down from the surface. And then it suddenly, hold on, you now can relate this bright spot to what I've seen in a magazine. We recently interviewed a seismologist at Bristol University, Anna um, Orliston. She's been working uh, at a desk, looking out and seeing Mars, looking down at a screen and in real time seeing the squiggles coming live from inside. So within one generation, wow. people have been able to look at this object and then look at your laptop. Mm. But when I was starting out, you you know, scientists were strange creatures for the world. They didn't had no interest particularly in outreach. They had no interest in 
popularizing because it was you know go and stand over there away from the people doing the work now there's you know there's your local planetarium there are outreach coordinators and you don't have to be technical you don't have to be scientific because that's the, the main difference in those days when i was interested and i guess when you were elizabeth if you weren't an a student who was clever at mathematics you know go something else now it doesn't matter it's not just the preserve of the geeks and um, Anybody who is interested can look up at that object, can read about it. You can find some. It was again. I was twelve when the first weather forecast came down from Mars from Viking One. Weather on another planet. Wow, you know. And it's the Lauren, your eight-year-old will find something that will, you know, set a spark. It might not be straight away. In, you know, it might wait a year till we can actually get out. So, so you can go to the planetarium. Um, will find some and just encourage them in that direction because they don't have to be a rocket scientist to be involved um yeah, absolutely really the big difference is now it, it's going to take poets it's going to take musicians it's going to take everybody will be involved in this adventure um and i think that's what it is it's the greatest adventure of all time and that's why you know we did the book with the same subtext it's an adventure to try and understand it Full circle. I love how you did that there. Really, really, really good. Yeah. I also really appreciate that at three times or three or four times in this interview, over the course of the interview, you made it apparent that musicians have a place in this world. And I'm very no, happy no, no, about that. So. They can all go on a one way ticket. To- <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I appreciate we've had power cuts and connection issues and all kind of stuff, and we've got through it. So I really appreciate you've given me this time and all your insight. Uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to love it. It. Thank you so, so very much. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Dave. Endeavour Houston, we see a nominal Miko. Ohms 1, not required. Welcome to space. As always, the full unedited interview video can be viewed on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash space and things. And I will be putting links to both Elizabeth and Nick's social media pages in our show notes. But what a lovely interview that was. Yeah, uh, I, I did listen to it today and... Um... I, I leave the Mars planetary expertise up to a lot of other people. I, I would not consider myself an expert in that. I love reading about it. Um, I've yeah. I've loved reading about that stuff since I was a kid because um, Viking had just ended the Viking program. That's how old I'm getting. I'll be oh my god, I'll be 43 next week. But um, yeah, that's a while back. But anyway, um, <laughs> before I start crying, <laughs> um. I'm also excited to hear about, you know, the advances of going to Mars itself, you know, and stuff like uh, I I think Perseverance has the sky crane. I think it does. And it also has the um, uh, we talked about this a few months ago when they launched it. They have the the helicopter. So that's yeah, it's going to be really cool. I can't wait. The Mars drone. That's going to be awesome. I hope I'm praying to God the the drone. I mean, if it doesn't work, it's a I think it's a test article. So if it doesn't work. It's kind of to be expected almost because tests don't always work. But um, if it does work, it'll be awesome. So Absolutely. And that's kind of, that was kind of a theme that we ran through that uh, interview. You know, Mars has been hard to, to do things on. Yes. And, uh, and, and I loved hearing the stories of, of 
the people behind some of those uh, those missions and how those things affect them. It's it's it was really quite inspiring to hear those stories of the people and their book. Uh, the book that Elizabeth and Nick have written is really wonderful. I thoroughly recommend it. Uh, I've I've been reading a copy for the last few weeks now. I'm, I'm nearly at the end, but I'm really engaged with it. It's it's a really well written book, and I'm learning a lot. Yeah. So um, check that out. Uh, but thank you very much to Elizabeth and Nick for joining yes, us. Yes, thank you guys. Um, uh, because it was great having you on. And hopefully we'll get you back. Yeah, I hope they come back on the show soon. I, I'd like to hear more about uh, Mars exploration, definitely. Absolutely. Um, so one last thing. It's back. I know you've all missed it. Most of you are concerned that Emily may have even been having some withdrawal symptoms. And some of you may have even been thinking... Surely they've not gone through three episodes in a row without mentioning it. But we thought we'd save it to the very end. That's right. The astronauts who flew to the International Space Station on the Crew-1 mission set a new U.S. record this week. On their 84th day in space, they extended the record for the most days in space for a human, uh, for a U.S. human space capsule originally set in 1973 and 1974 by the, wait for it, Skylab 4 crew of Gerald Carr, William Pogue, <laughs> and our friend Ed Gibson. Um, yeah, uh, the best Skylab crew, but I'm a little I'm a little biased. Um, and to celebrate, the astronauts had a video call with Dr. Gibson himself, which looks absolutely awesome. I, I love those photos of uh, of uh, the astronauts crowding around their laptop with Ed on the screen. That was wonderful yeah, to see. Yeah, Ed looked really happy. It, uh, to me, it, it closes a circle because it's like, the ISS was something that I know when Ed was still at NASA, you know, he had hopes of a new space station, you know, something, you know, more advanced than Skylab, you know, and to see him talking with the people on that space station to me is just it closes a circle and it's very special to me. So I was like, that is awesome. Like my emotions couldn't handle it. So I was very happy to see it. Yeah. And also, wasn't it? It was the anniversary of the of the splashdown this yes. week, wasn't it? As well, so that kind of was also a nice <clears throat> a nice time to for that to have happened. Uh, you posted a great photo of, of Ed smiling with the door open of the capsule. I loved that yeah. photo. It was so yeah, cool. looking like a teenager, <laughs> looking like a kid. Yeah, he looks yeah, he looked really young. He looks like he's asking them if their phone has games or something. <laughs> he, <laughs> does your phone have games on it, sir? Like. Because he looks, he looks so young. He had the the I I don't know the rusty Schweiker disease of looking really young as an astronaut. So yeah, I love that picture though because he looks like, hey, I'm here. You know, that's a really great picture. And um, yeah, they were in. I don't know. I'll, I'll shut up. I don't want the whole show to be about Skylab. So I'll stop now. I'll stop now before I get carried away. Anyway, it's good to have it back. Yes, Emily. it's, good it's to have back. It back now. Now we got to re- restart the clock. So yeah, re- re- reset, reset the clock. clock. Hit, yeah, hit the button and restart. Yep. That's all we have time for this week. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and our interview with Elizabeth and Nicholas. Thanks to all those who continue to support the show and to those who hit that share button. Now, next week, we're going to be covering the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 14 mission with a very special guest that we are very excited about. Absolutely. Yes, it's going to be awesome, so don't miss it. And um, (laughs) thank you so much uh, to all of you for listening. And please remember, in space, no one can hear you me. Space and Things has been brought to you by... And Things Productions. <laughs>